0: Thank you, worship team. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Whether you brought one with you, you got one on your device, whatever you're using, find Colossians, chapter 3. In week 6 of our study, uh, through Paul's letter to the Colossians. As you find it, let me just say thank you to those of you who give and support this ministry. I don't know if you saw, but our building debt is now below Uh, where it's been in the past. I'm really excited. I I can see the light at the end of the tunnel on that, can't I? So that's exciting. Thank you for y'all who give and support this ministry. Even in the midst of COVID, uh, your giving is being stewarded and used to make the gospel known in Katy's and beyond and to make an impact for God's kingdom here and now. So thank you again. For doing that, we very much appreciate it. And if you're giving with us this morning, again, I'll just remind you on on your way out, there'll be a bucket right by the door as you exit where you can drop those tithes and those offerings in uh, so that they may be used and and used outside of these walls to make an impact uh, for God's kingdom. Colossians chapter 3, we'll be looking together from verses 1 to 11. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will be with then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you have put them all away. Anger, wrath. "'Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. "'Do not lie to one another, "'seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices "'and have put on the new self, "'which is being renewed in the knowledge "'after the image of its creator. "'Here there is not Jew and Greek, "'circumcised and uncircumcised, "'barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, "'but Christ is all and in all. "'This is the word of God.'" Sometimes order means everything. I'm a guy who's all about his routine. Every day before I walk out the door, I got to check phone, wallet, money, keys, everything I need. I've got to check it and I have to do it in a certain order or I get all thrown off. (laughs) I can get so thrown off sometimes. I was once driving down the road. I was, in, I was in a rush, forgot to check on all stuff. I was driving down the road and began to wonder why I didn't feel my keys in my pocket and began to just freak out and go, oh, no, I left my car keys at home. I need to turn the car around. <laughs> and so that tells us that without proper order, we can be left confused, discombobulated, and unprepared. And as we come to Colossians chapter 3, the Holy Spirit wants to teach us something about order when it comes to being more like Christ. In fact, the whole point of this passage is verse 10 of chapter 3, where he talks about how we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And we were told back in Colossians 1 that that creator is Jesus. And so he's telling us that as Christians, it's in the name, we are being made more like Christ. And being made more like Jesus means having the right order. It means having a certain way in which we do this. And the Holy Spirit prescribes for us two steps. And And he's emphasizing that these steps must be done in this order. That first, we must meditate on Christ, and then second... We must then murder our sin. So first, consider that we're told to meditate on Christ. Meditate on Christ. Look with me at Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2. Look with me here. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Our culture talks a lot about meditation, don't they? Except most of the meditation they practice or talk about is rooted more in Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, where the goal is to empty your mind. In a fast-paced world, where our minds are constantly going and being bombarded with information, so many have thought that the key to peace was to empty our mind Of everything, but God's word actually offers the opposite solution. That Christians, Christian meditation, meditating on God's word, is not emptying our mind, but rather filling it with Christ. Psalm chapter 1, we're actually told that the blessed man is the one who meditates on God's law day and night. Joshua was commanded by God to meditate on God's word. Meditation isn't the wrong word, but we often, when we think of it, we've got the wrong way in mind. Here, Colossians chapter 1, we're told to set our minds on Christ, to fill us up with him. To fill our minds with Christ, to reflect on Christ, to remember him, and this is how we seek Christ. The things that are above. To seek God, we must set our minds on him. And what are we to think about? What are we to fill our minds with with about God? There's tons of truths we we could think about, but Colossians offer us three things in particular that we should fill our mind with, meditate on, chew on, look at with intensity in our minds. First, we're to set our mind on Christ's ascension, Christ's... Ascension. Look at verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When was the last time we thought deeply and, and, and set our minds on the fact that Christ has ascended to heaven? We talk a lot about his death on the cross. We talk a ton about his burial and his resurrection, but it didn't end there, did it? <laughs> Jesus ascended, he rose into heaven, and he now reigns from heaven at the right hand of God. And notice that verse 1 tells us that from heaven Christ is now seated, that his work is finished. The book of Hebrews offers us an incredible contrast where it says this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered himself for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Amen. See, Jesus sitting showed that his work was done finished, complete. You know this. You're doing a job around the house and you don't set down until that job is done. But also notice that if he's seated, that means he's ruling and he ain't worried about it. Whatever you might be worried about, he's seated at the right hand of God, a place of authority and power. And when a king is seated, a king is not shaken. When the king is seated, He is completely in control. When crazy things happen in your life, I want you to know Christ isn't up in heaven just pacing around going, how could I let this happen? It isn't how he is. He's seated calmly and with full authority. And shouldn't that produce peace in us? reflecting, meditating, reminding ourselves that he is not shaken, reminding ourselves that his work is full and done, and that we don't have to earn our way to approval with him, but it's been earned through his death, burial, and resurrection, and and we can receive that through faith in him. Set our minds on things above. Christ has ascended there. Second, We're told to set our minds to meditate on union with Christ, on the fact that we're, so he has ascended and and on on our union with him. Verse 3, this is one of the most beautiful verses, I think, in the whole book of Colossians. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's another incredible reality in this text that I don't think we give enough thought to. We're in union with Jesus by faith. When he died, the scripture says, we died with him. And when he rose, we have been raised with him. That There's a profoundly real, intimate sense in which right now, if you are trusting in Jesus, you are one with him. You are in union with him, that we have died with him and our life is hidden with Christ in God. We are in Christ. Christ is in us, united with Christ in his death and resurrection, so that all that is ours was given to him, our brokenness, our sin, our failing, our faithfulness, that all that was given to him and is his is now given to us, his righteousness, blessedness, immortality. There's a huge switch that occurs. Charles Spurgeon once said, famous uh, preacher from about 200 years ago, told, said that there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. Have we ever set our minds on that we're united with Christ and he's united with us and that there's nowhere that you're going to go anywhere in this world where you will go where Christ isn't with you and that there's nothing that you're not going to share with him. And depending on where you're going and what you're doing in your life, that could produce a lot of concern for you. There's nowhere, there's nothing you're going to do as a Christian and as a believer that you're not bringing Jesus along with you there. That could be a matter of great concern or a matter of great joy. Because there's nowhere that you're going to go that the king of heaven isn't coming with you. You're united with him. Jesus goes wherever you go. Set your mind on your union with Christ. On his ascension, our union with him. And finally, set our minds on his appearance. His appearance. Verse 4. Look what he says. When Christ, who is your life, appears... Then you will also appear with him in glory. Christ is our life, and the Bible promises that one day he will appear and he'll come again and he will bring his people to glory. And that's a reminder to us of something that we often want to push aside but need to remember, and that's that this life is not all there is. I'll tell you, I'm kind of a weird guy and my wife will tell you that i kind of sometimes i just have these real morbid reflections on death <laughs> and i share them with my poor wife sometimes and i take time to pause as we pass cemeteries and i'll go hey i wonder who's buried there and who didn't know that they would one day be buried there and i remember going and i remind myself that i'm going the same way they went I'll tell you, one of the things that I do that, that, I, that I drag my poor wife along with me to is I often visit very historic cemeteries. I love to go in them and see the, the, the old 1800s um, tombs, the, the stones there, and visit them. And I find it to be both a spiritually humbling and enriching experience. Because I find that I'm reminded again that I am going the same way all of these people went. But I also am reminded that, I, that when we set our mind on the fact that this life is not all there is, and we set our mind on the fact that Christ is going to come and judge the living and the dead, and I set my mind on the fact that all evil is going to be judged, do you realize that there is no such thing as an unsolved murder from Jesus' perspective? And I set my mind on the fact that one day every cemetery is going to be empty, Because God's going to come and He's going to raise the dead. And there ain't going to be any need for them anymore. We'll probably put put something else there in the world to come. We're going to dwell in glory on a new heavens and a new earth. That's something to set our mind on. And it's also to set our mind on those who are outside of Christ don't have this hope awaiting them. But have an eternity separated from Christ an eternal death in a real place called hell. Friends, we need to set our minds on the fact that this life is not all there is. We get so caught up in what's right here when there's so much more beyond here. I long for the day when my Savior appears and my faith becomes sight. Have we set our mind, our hope, our all on his appearing, We are to set our mind there. Christ-likeness begins with meditating on Christ, but it doesn't happen just by setting our mind there. That's the first step. That's the first thing we must do to be like Jesus is to look at Jesus, to look at him, reflect on him, meditate on him, trust his promises. But we also then, after doing that, we get to work. Christ-likeness requires us to meditate on Christ, but also, second, to murder our sin. Murder our sin. I know that's a strong word. It sounds very drastic, but that's actually the language Paul uses here. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. First, notice that command, to put to death. The original language is literally, make it dead. Whatever it takes, make it dead. But also, notice the therefore. Paul is connecting the previous section about meditating and setting our mind on Christ with this next section on killing and putting to death our sin. What you set your mind on directly impacts how you live your life. What you set your mind on directly impacts how you live your life. In fact, Paul is serious about getting this order correct. So many of us want to buckle up our bootstraps and try to do it all on our own, in our own power, but he says, first, set your mind on Christ before you set your mind on holiness. Set your look to Christ before you look to defeating sin. The old Puritans would say you vivify or you come alive and worship before you mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh. While Paul has all sin in mind here, he's going to get specific And he targets three specific sins. And in doing so, he's going to be unpopular with many in our culture and maybe even many in this room. Paul didn't have in mind that he wanted to be praised by the culture. The Holy Spirit calls us through this text to be countercultural and to put some things that our culture may even see as valuable and good to death. And to do it by looking to Christ and getting to work and putting them to death. In fact, Paul says... We can't grow to be like Jesus until we know that these things that our culture may think are not a big deal are actually barriers, sins, and enemies that will keep us from this goal. Colossians 3 first tells us to put to death our sexual sin. Put to death, murder, put to death your sexual sin. Notice verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul's not being politically correct here. And some others may go, well, I don't want want so-and-so, my child or my teenager hearing this. Let me tell you, they're hearing this from somewhere already. And Paul here is speaking when he says sexual morality. He's using a Greek word called porneia which you can see where some English things get their name from this. And it's a word that encompasses all forms of sexual activity outside of marriage. It's a big umbrella term that covers all same-sex activity and opposite-sex sexual activity outside of marriage. And all of us in our life have been guilty of pornea in one way or another. There's not a person in here, myself included, that, that being judged by this standard would not be found guilty over the course of our life. And he uses five terms for describing this. First, he says it's earthly. It's earthly. Not just that it relates to the things of earth. But he's contrasting it with the heavenly priorities he mentioned in verses 1 to 4. That sexual immorality is opposed, in opposition. It cannot coexist with heavenly priorities, so it must be put to death. Second, sexual morality, he says, is impure. Notice that there in verse 5. He says sexual morality, impurity. It's impurity. It's unclean, and it leaves you feeling unclean. Third, He says it's a passion, and not the good kind of passion, an unsatiable hunger that will not be filled, he says. Fourth, he he tells us in the text, if he didn't need to be any clearer, he says sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and evil desire not rooted in goodness. And fifth, he says it's covetousness. It's covetousness. It's ultimately rooted in desiring what belongs to someone else. I think it's clear what Paul and, and and the Holy Spirit writing through Paul is telling us about sexual sin. Amen. He's giving us a very clear warning. And if you need it any more, verse six on account of these the wrath of God is coming. But have you ever asked yourself why? Why does God care who I sleep with? I know I hear it from folks in my generation all the time. And the end of verse 5 tells us, gives us a little hint into this. Why does God care about this? Verse 5, he says, which is, he says, it's covetousness, which is idolatry. That sexual morality in all its various forms ultimately rooted in idolatry, in wrong worship. If you ever doubted that sex was an idol, Notice what happens when you try to keep others from it. <laughs> you ever notice how much they needed to have it? Notice what happens when you even begin to question that maybe what they're doing may not be the best idea. People will go to extremes, lie, cheat, steal, and it's a God that promises much, but I'll tell you, it delivers little. Amen. It delivers little. And your personal pleasure is a terrible Idle. And yet, we're taught every day, just follow your heart. Just do what makes you happy and feels good. And friends, that's an empty road. That's, right. that's an empty road. Yet, what happens in the bedroom is not just about your personal wants and expression. Sex is ultimately rooted in worship. It's an act of sacrifice to what matters the most to you. Hear this. If you're unmarried and having sex, you're saying, I would give up my body, my soul, my everything for moments of pleasure with this person. And Jesus brought this home to a group of crowds in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 8, where he said this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for her soul and some of us will give a fun night in exchange for our souls and boy it reveals what we truly worship and it reveals what really matters to us and to the married hear me this isn't just a sermon to the single people to the married folks in the room by consistently loving and pursuing your spouse you're sacrificing too you're saying that like jesus died and gave himself for his people, I will will give myself for the commitment I made, I promised, and there's going to be no one else who's going to have this. You have all of it, and no one else has it. God has created this good gift. Sex is a good gift, and it only becomes a bad thing when we misuse it and make it a God thing. It's much like fire, where fire is great when it's in the fireplace, but when you put it on the couch you start having some problems. Sex is sacrifice. And as people with our mindset on heaven, he calls us to see that momentary pleasure isn't worth exchanging for the eternal pleasures that we could have in the presence of God. It isn't worth exchanging the pleasures of having God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It isn't worth the pain that it can cause And it will, believe me. And though Jesus can forgive, and he does forgive all sins, and he can forgive your sin today if this is an area where you have stumbled, he can forgive you fully and freely and not hold it against you anymore, there are still consequences. And outside of Jesus, the Bible tells us that that fun night may be met with God's wrath one day. And with our minds set on Jesus, we put this sin to death. We put this sin to death. Second, he wants to turn now to, to for us to put to death sins of speech. Sins of speech. Notice verse seven. In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He says, put it away. Put them aside to lay them aside like a dirty garment. I'm the worst about hanging on to clothes after I should have tossed them out. Some of you are looking at other people in the room right now. Right after Dana and I got married, I had an old pair of shoes that had holes all in them. You could literally see the toe of my sock through the hole of these shoes. And I would wear them all year round. Even when it was snowing outside, I would wear these shoes. And my wife finally convinced me, told me to toss it aside and to get rid of them, put them away. And this is the same thing he says to do with our sins of speech. And what sort of speech here? What sort of speech is he talking about? Not just lying, though he does include that in verse 9, right? Don't lie to one another. But speaking out of sinful anger or wrath, malice or slander, all these being ways in which, here's how you can tell when you've stepped into this, you've turned your words into weapons in order to hurt or wound another With the goal to be a weapon to wound others, he says, "Set aside using your words as weapons." And he also set aside obscene, dirty talk. He says, "Set it aside." We're not commanded to. We are. We are commanded to put up the old shoes with all the dirty holes in them, and instead, he says, to put aside the old shoes of sinful speech because Jesus changes who we are. All of these promises of our union with him and his ascension and his appearing should change us and transform us. All of these were sins the Colossians had once walked in. And maybe even still continued to struggle with. And so we set these former things aside and we put on something brand new. He says new selves, verse 10, right? He says, "Be in, in new, put on your new self that's being renewed after the image of the... Creator and our new selves, we're being daily transformed by the knowledge of God. Though in Christ, we're in heaven with Jesus right now, yet we also live on earth and are continually being transformed more into who He saved us to be by faith. We can daily find grace and mercy united to Jesus to live holy lives for the glory of God. He says, put to death your sexual sin, put to death your sins of speech, and put to death sins of superiority. Superiority, verse 11. Verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Here, he says, In Christ, as a new people being recreated by grace, he says, there is no superiority. Now, this verse doesn't mean that there aren't distinctions and differences between people because he talks about Jews and Greeks. There were lots of differences still between the Jews and Greeks. They didn't just suddenly go away when they became Christians. But it means that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It means we don't look down on other believers because of their past or their present. Because of what they've done or who they are, all of these groups had their various reasons to divide. The Jews and Greeks were one of the biggest divides that the whole Old Testament deals with because they were separated by these practices. Jews having that they would only eat certain foods and and felt, had very weak consciences about some things. Just felt strongly they should continue to to hold to some of those Old Testament laws. Wow, The, the Greeks were over there eating meat and coming from pagan and idolatrous backgrounds and there was all these temptations to judge and to divide and to fight even over circumcision and uncircumcision. Even when the barbarian and the Scythians, who were considered to be the lowest of the low, he says, they can find room at the empty tomb too. And he says, there's no superior superiority. It could be possible to see ourselves as better than the guy down the row, down the row from us. It's possible that we're tempted to think that we are somehow better than they are because we know their story. But he says... Isn't Christ all and in all? Isn't he in all believers and isn't he the most important thing? Because our unity, hear me, isn't uniformity. It doesn't mean we all wear the same clothes, talk the same way, look the same way, have all the same interests. No, our unity isn't uniformity. We aren't the same in every detail. But in the gospel, we share a union with the same Jesus. And thus, we're united together with him. And as a church, God intends to say something to the world. God intends to say that there's something supernatural that's going on here because we have all these different people from all these different backgrounds that are united together by one person, by Jesus Christ. Friends, do you feel superior to others in these walls? Or maybe, do you even subtly feel superior sometimes to the sinner's Notice the air quotes, the sinners outside of these walls. Jesus wants to bring us down a notch and tell us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that only this reality, the humbling, all-embracing orientation of the gospel that calls all who are weary to come find rest can set you free from the sin of superiority and help you put it to death. Once we set our minds on heavenly things, he says, we can put to death these lowly sins, like the sin of superiority. Here's the bottom line. He says, "Without the eyes of faith locked on Jesus, we will not live like Jesus." That's what Colossians 3 is all about. Without looking to Jesus, you're not going to just do this in your own power, putting forth enough effort, doing all these things simply by yourself in your own power. He says, without eyes locked on Jesus by faith, you will never live like Jesus and live a life of faith. And so where's your focus? Crossroads, where is our gaze? The war against sin is real. We must be intentional in our warfare. Let me say for those who struggle in this room with pornography or who may be struggling with sexual sin in their life, I want you to know that this sermon is a call to step into the light, to confess your sin and to get accountability. Maybe some software on your computer like Covenant Eyes or or some accountability with brothers and sisters who can hold you accountable on this. But friends, without eyes of faith, even those things cannot ultimately change your heart. I want you to know that if that's something you're struggling with, this isn't a place where you'll receive judgment, but it's a place where we will warn you about what the Bible clearly says about this, and we'll help you and walk beside you on the road to healing and wholeness and rescue, and enjoy forevermore in the presence of God. But without Christ, you can restrain your sin, but you cannot kill it, because only Jesus can change your heart. And I would warn again that John Owen, who's this old school, no, he didn't play around, this Puritan from back in the 1600s said, be killing your sin, or it be killing you. And he gives a strong warning to us, that this is important. We, we must be intentional to come forward into the light today. Whoever you are, you can fill out a card, drop it on your way. You can talk to me or to someone here that you respect and just say, I'm struggling. And we'll pray with you. We want to walk beside you toward restoration and healing and wholeness in Jesus. We must also be intentional in taming our tongues. It's so easy to speak without thinking and to attack others. And one way we can fight this sin or any sin is to find a few verses in the Bible or even you may be noticing we've been putting some memory verses on the bottom of your notes every week. Those are things for you to just memorize and reflect on each week, maybe to try to commit to memory, to fill your mind with truth, to go, okay, I'm tempted to say this. (laughs) Let me think on that Christ is my life and he's going to appear. And when I want to say this right now, Or to go, my life is hidden with Christ and God. Let me hold to that instead of spouting off this long response to this person on Facebook. For taming your tongue and ultimately changing your tongue, maybe look at the book of Colossians, the book of James, the book of Proverbs. But find you some verses that you can cling to, some truths from God's word. Maybe even there's a proverb that tells us that the, wise man, that the man is considered wise until he opens his mouth. I have braced to that verse. And so if I seem sometimes really quiet, it's because I want you to think I'm really smart so cling to that, hold to those verses, find those, line them up, memorize them, put them next to your computer, put them on your phone, lock screen, whatever it would take to have you look to that instead of speaking and using our words as weapons. Finally, sin, the sin of superiority is alive and well. Whether it be issues of race, class, culture, or onward, we have real work to do in this area. And this isn't a political statement at all. This is simply true. And that's why we need to look to Jesus. Because, friends, before he was a resurrected king, he was a humble servant. He bowed low enough. He lived rejected by the world. So that means, friends, he can reach any of you, no matter how low you may feel, no matter how rejected you may feel, no matter if you feel like you're the lowest of the low and that no one in the world could ever understand you, let me tell you, the Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head. That the very people he came to save put him up on a cross. He knows what it feels like to be despised and rejected by men. And we can look to him to find life. So as we seek to be more like Jesus, let's make sure we have the order right. Let's make sure we set our eyes on him before we set our sights on freedom from sin. Make it a routine in your life to look to Jesus before heading into whatever battles you may face this week or this day or in your life ahead. Oh, what hope we have. All of us here are works in progress. Your pastor included is a work in progress. And God has promised, though, to get us to the finish line. We may sometimes get into thinking that we left our keys at home but his promises and his grace will sustain us. Look again with me at verse 3 and 4 of Colossians 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See this, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. He has an end point. He who began a good work in you will bring it forth to the day of completion. That if he is working on you, friends, let me tell you there's going to be a day when he's done with that. When you get to heaven or He resurrects, and he resurrects us from the grave, when, when we're standing in a new heavens and a new earth, and he's going to be done with his work in you, and you're going to be done with these struggles with sin. There's a day coming. And that's why we can press forward with our eyes set on that in faith. And do war against our sin. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good. Father in heaven, thank you that, that you have sent your Son who's ascended into heaven and brought us with him there, that we're seated at the right hand of God with him, because we're in union with him, and that there's one day where you're gonna appear and bring us to be with you in glory, and we long for that day. We ask that you'd come soon, Lord Jesus help us with our eyes set there to do war against our sin. It may, not be pos- it may not be popular in the world that we're in to speak about sexual sin or sins of speech or sins of superiority, but we ask that you would help us to fight this sin, help us to set our eyes on you, just capture our gaze and make our joy new. And you set people free in this room as we respond in worship this morning. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.